Okay, um, I'll start recording now. And just initially throw it open to you, as I said I would. Uh, <coughs> I'm thinking of the major themes and topics uh, that uh, we're structuring term one. Okay, we started with trauma in the first two weeks. We looked at uh, some of the early work on trauma done by Freud and even his, his co-collaborator, um, uh, uh, Breuer, in that opening lecture. Um, some of the short case studies around trauma uh, and focused on the question of time, uh, the time of the trauma uh, and the time structure of trauma, of psychical trauma, which is very different from the time structure of physical trauma. Uh, <coughs> um, and uh, that was developed a bit in the second week. Uh, and uh, we looked at this wonderfully Baroque traumatic narrative from uh, uh, E.T.A. Hoffman, Mademoiselle de Scuderie, uh, which is structured around uh, traumatic repetitions of a, of a, uh, of a disturbing uh, scene, which one can borrow Freud's phrase and call it uh, a primal scene, and the goldsmith uh, and his murderous obsessions. Um, uh, looking at, at a kind of uh, a, a very sophisticated literary uh, processing of, of traumatic material and traumatic repetition from a hun nearly a hundred years before uh, Freud. Um, uh, then, then dreams. Again, we looked at dream theory uh, and uh, uh, the model of the dream work and the primary processes of condensation and displacement uh, and, and the distinctions between the manifest dream uh, and the latent material that gets processed and turned into uh, that manifest scene of, of the dream. And uh, then we looked at the Gradiva novella by Wilhelm Jensen uh, that Freud writes. His longest, it's his longest literary work, really, uh, the, the, the essay on Jensen. He clearly fell in love with Jensen's story. And there are, just, there are certain moments when you can, where, where uh, there's a quality in Freud's writing that tells you that there's an emotional pressure behind what can sometimes look quite theoretical and abstract. Uh, and one of the instances I think where, you get, where I get that sense of emotional pressure uh, is in his writing about uh, Jensen. And gosh, I hope that's not going to go on in the next hour. Um, writing about Jensen and uh, the ruins of Pompeii. Archaeology is a kind of very uh, resonant metaphor for Freud. Uh, and he sometimes sees himself as a sort of archaeologist of the mind, uh, uh, investigating different strata that have been deposited uh, uh, through, through the years uh, and through um, mo uh, dramatic or traumatic turning points, uh, as, in, as with the destruction of Pompeii. Uh, it resonates for him. And so he's, he kind of falls in love with Jensen's story. Uh, and he writes this very, very detailed, very long uh, analysis uh, of the story. Um, and probably no other novella has had quite so extensive an analysis. And he focuses on dreams, which is why I put it in week four, following on from dream theory, okay? Um, uh, and, and, the, uh, and the ways in which uh, uh, Norbert, the, the protagonist's uh, th three, well, actually there are four dreams, sort of three main dreams, uh, uh, recapitulate and rework what, Freud in his dream theory calls the day's residues, the unfinished business of the day, the day before the dream, which then gets reprocessed uh, in the dream and which often provides the mise-en-scene of the dream, as it were. Um, though, of course, uh, a key thing uh, uh, that sometimes drops out is that for Freud, what the, the energy that drives the formation of a dream, if you like, the motor, the motor power of the dream is... Uh, uh, is an in, a, a key infantile uh, scenario or fantasy or, or a wish encoded in a fantasy uh, uh, that, that has had a formative effect on the structuring of the dreamer's subjectivity. Uh, so we, we then moved from uh, trauma and dreams onto the question of sexuality and particularly infantile sexuality, which is something Freud comes across uh, uh, when he's struggling with his seduction theory and he finds that the scenes that are being produced by association or by acting out uh, by a, a number of his patients seem to go further and further and further back into, into infancy. Um, uh, uh, and that throws him, that really puzzles him. And he thinks 
initially in terms of, um, well, children don't, are asexual. They're not sexual until puberty kicks in. Uh, 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 human beings have a long pre-sexual childhood compared to other species. Um, and uh, uh, so the sexual dimension of this material must have come from some uh, abusive and perverse adult. Uh, and, that, and, he, and he explores the difficulties of that and changes his mind back and forwards, etc. Um, uh, people often think that he just, in a letter to Fleece in September 97, just, you know, I reject my dream theory. I no longer belong in, believe in it for the following four reasons. And, and you had that letter along with the trauma material. But actually, he then changes his mind a month later. It's often represented as the big turning point. Um, it does articulate very very clearly ob uh, objections in his own mind to his then, the then version of his model of trauma as traumatic seduction. But he then goes back to his trauma model. I mean, in other words, there's a period of oscillation right through the 1890s. But he's in the process of discovering, uh, as it were, the potentiality for a childhood eroticism that is distinctively different from adult sexuality because it's not centred necessarily on the genitals, it's not organised around a male-female binary, um, and uh, it's a discovery of a, of, a, of a whole different world, if you like, the world of infantile eroticism. Um, and that's what he writes about in the three essays. So uh, you looked at the infantile sexuality essay, and along with that the little hands case study, uh, <coughs> and, and I hope you thought about them, uh, both their continuity, but also their, their differences. Um, uh, and one of the main differences is, of course, that uh, in the three essays, the word fantasy hardly appears. I think there are some footnotes written back into it um, from uh, 1912, 1915. This came out in 1905. Um, uh, the f there's, there's, there's almost no fantasy dimension there, which is really surprising. Uh, whereas Little Hands turns around fantasies. That's what it's about. It's about little Hans's capacity to generate cycles of fantasies. Fantasies about horses, horses that might come into his room at night, horses that might bite, horses that are overloaded and collapse and fall down, white horses at Gmunden, dark horses with bridles. I mean, there's a, there's a whole horse cycle of fantasies that he, that he produces through which he, as it were, positions and repositions himself in fantasy in relation to the family dynamic and to his mother and his father. Uh, and there's a second cycle of fantasies as well uh, uh, later on about, the, about which center around childbirth. Uh, uh, so fantasy is crucial in the case study, but it's just virtually absent in the theoretical essay, which is really curious and striking. Um, but it, put, it foregrounds the question of, of a, of a, uh, a, um, a pre-genital, pre-adult, pre-Oedipal uh, a form of eroticism in, in, uh, in childhood, which Freud calls polymorphous perversity. Um, and we see little hands as it were exiting out of that into something like a more organized proto-adult form of, uh, of, of, of identification and sexual object choice. Um, it has to be said, dragged, kicking and screaming a lot of the way. He can't see why he can't have babies like his mother does. Uh, and, um, and then he winds his father up about this rather wonderfully in some of those very funny conversations where he assures his father that he'll have babies and um, he'll lay an egg and the little daughter will come out, etc. At that point, it's pretty clear he's, he's, got, a, he's got some sort of sense uh, of, of the reproductive function. Um, but there are a lot of things that are unclear to him. Um, and uh, he's got a very strong identification with, uh, uh, with his mother as somebody who can do this fascinating thing, produce, produce babies. Why can't he produce babies? And of course he has his own ba imaginary children, doesn't he, which he takes to uh, the, the broom cupboard. His father sees him in the broom cupboard and says, what are you doing in there? And he says, I'm in my WC with my children. So he's reenacting certain patterns of experience that he'd experienced first with his mother and can see no reason why. Uh, in other words, he, he, has, he has to take a lot of convincing about sexual difference, uh, etc. Uh, and that finally is what the whole narrative is about. His phobia, his anxiety phobia centers around uh, two complexes that Freud uh, partly formulates through thinking about the little hands case, the Oedipus complex and 
the castration complex, controversial as they are even within uh, uh, psychoanalysis itself. So the question of sexuality then uh, uh, is put on the agenda. A radically different understanding of sexuality from the traditional common sense one. Uh, sexuality is a, is a kind of uh, instinct as in animal species that impels human beings to, to, to reproduce, to reproductive activity. And for Freud, that is only uh, at the end of a long process of formation uh, and, uh, and crisis and, and uh, uh, takes the, uh, um, the play of repression and sublimation to produce something like uh, a reproductively centered heterosexuality, and it doesn't always do that. Um, I then I think that, we, that, that if I'm remembering the structure of term one right, there's uh, a break for a week where no doubt you all took a breath. Uh, and we looked at a, a post-Freudian, Jean Laplanche, who is a, a, a translator of Freud's. He presides over, or he presided over, he died earlier this year. He presided over the, the first proper uh, French oeuvre complete uh, of, of Freud's works. Um, uh, he's written extensively on Freud uh, and he's very concerned to go back to Freud's sources as it were and work through the development of the Freudian field but he's also quite critical of Freud um, and uh, his work is I think one of the most interesting post-Freudian developments because um, uh, he goes back to sources and he rethinks the question of trauma and the opposition between the trauma model, which Freud appears officially to have abandoned for a developmentalist model um, uh, based on, the, quest on uh, the question of sexual drives and of uh, infantile sexuality uh, as a spontaneous uh, developmental uh, stage of human development. Um, and he wants to, uh, as it were, uh, challenge that opposition. Um, and he has a larger argument that actually in some ways the trauma model just goes underground in Freud's thought. He never, he never really abandons it and it's, it's, a, it's a component even of his later work. Um, and indeed we, can, we will see this next week when we look at Leonardo, the great, the, his great uh, study of Leonardo da Vinci uh, where there's a, a massive return to the question of seduction and and in a kind of displaced, almost disguised form, the model of trauma surfaces through the model of the screen memory. But that's, a, that's for next week. Um, so Laplanche's return to, uh, is to the trauma theory because in the trauma theory, he argues in what the developmentalist model, uh, which is dominant in, in, in most forms of psychology, uh, including uh, psychoanalysis, leaves out is the relationship to the other. In other words, uh, his criticism of a developmentalist psychology would be that it's a one-body psychology. Uh, it's, it's, it takes place within, within the limits of a single brain or mind. Uh, and his argument is if we take seriously, not, not just what Freud um, formulated, but a lot of other post-Freudian psychoanalysts formulated about the formative nature of the first three to five years, uh, the child is absolutely dependent on the, on the adult other. There is an intersubjective relationship there. Uh, and it's, and, it, and uh, the, the, the developmentalist model has to be rethought in terms of that priority of the adult other. Uh, and not to assume that somehow or other that the child's psychic development is um, inherent or innate in the way in which our biological programming is. And because it's understandable why Freud and a lot of psychologists uh, and, and indeed psychoanalysts should move over from biology to psychology, a developmentalist model in which an inherent program simply unfolds stage by stage. You know, it, it's kind of, it makes sense. Um, uh, after all, if you think of us as a species, we are species specific, aren't we? So, you know, we're not, you know, uh, that the very way our bodies function is determined in advance by a program, a program that can go wrong depending on um, uh, genetic uh, 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 inheritances of various kinds and dependent on circumstances in which children are born. But on the whole, we're going to grow up with two arms, two legs, two eyes. We're going to walk upright on our, uh, 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 on our feet. Um, we, there's a set of things that are just 
um, determined in advance, just as if you think of the natural world, you know, um, apple trees are not going to just suddenly start producing bananas. There is this inbuilt developmental pattern that determines the growth and the stages of, of growth. So the movement of that into, uh, into psychology in the late 19th century, often under the influence of, of uh, Darwin and other um, models of evolution, um, seemed the obvious move to make. Now, Laplanche's argument with it is to say it leaves out the other, the, this absolutely profound radical dependency, uh, which is in a way species-specific for, uh, for human beings. Perhaps to some extent there's something equivalent in the higher primates um, uh, <coughs> where um, the developmental pattern is there to varying degrees, certainly in terms of our bodily development, um, but... Uh, for it to be activated and for it to, to be energized depends on the relationship to the other. And he takes a very, very strong position against one train of thought in Freud, uh, and which had been dominant in a lot of psychoanalysis post-Freud, which is that somehow or other the human infant is born with an unconscious, uh, uh, which, he, which he, he calls the id, uh, which is a, a, a seat of instinctual and therefore pre-given um, uh, urges, as it were, uh, it's there from the beginning. Uh, and he argues, actually, the radical insight of Freud uh, is that the unconscious is rather a secondary formation. It's constructed through certain processes of, of, of primal and secondary repression, etc., by a whole array, uh, an armory, if you like, of defenses against, against um, uh, excessive excitations of various kinds that may be overwhelming, swamping, frightening, or just plain forbidden, taboo, as it were. Um, the unconscious, then, is something that is formed out of the interaction between the developing infant uh, and uh, the adult nurturer, as it were. So he, he in a sense, attempts to recenter um, uh, psychoanalysis uh, back on that train of thought that's always there, even if it's sometimes underground uh, in Freud's own work uh, on that. And he uses this um, cosmological metaphor of the Ptolemaic and the Copernican. Uh, you know, the, the idea in, in the Ptolemaic model of the, of the cosmos, the Earth is at the center, uh, and, and the, the planets move around the Earth, uh, and the, these crystalline spheres created by God, which are all in musical harmony with each other. It's a very beautiful model, a Ptolemaic model, and you'll see it working in Elizabethan literature, etc. Uh, in particular, a lot of rather wonderful Elizabethan poetry that picks up on this idea of the... the, the uh, which was felt to be scientifically demonstrable by a lot of 16th, 17th century scientists, that uh, the uh, structure of music resonates with the structure of a God-designed universe with these crystalline spheres... Uh, enclosing at the centre of the earth. Everything then centres on the earth where God has made man um, to be the, um, uh, the, dominant the dominant and only rational species. And that, that model is, uh, is then obviously gives way to uh, a thinking of the universe in which um, not only does, is the earth but one planet that moves around the sun, um, but the fact that there are fixed stars that are not explicable and don't seem to move around the sun suggests that, uh, that we're simply in one little system, this, our solar system, and there is infinite space outside that. In other words, there is no centering. And uh, Freud himself identifies very strongly with Copernicus. He sees himself as a Copernican thinker. Uh, he, for him, Copernicus is a kind of hero of modern scientific thought which challenges the spontaneous narcissism of uh, 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 of human beings who think of themselves as being at the centre of things, necessarily. Uh, so the um, Copernican dynamic in thinking is to, is to decenter. Okay. Um, to decenter, and he sees Copernicus as decentering the cosmos uh, and decentering Earth uh, and humanity as being at the centre of the cosmos. Uh, he hails Darwin as the next great thinker in that line of thought, who decenters. Um, the notion of uh, the human species as being um, some kind of uh, 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 you know, high point of, uh, uh, of, 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 the, of creation um, and seeing the human species as being uh, uh, one of a series of, um, of, of uh, evolutionary uh, versions of, 
uh, Homo sapiens or the Neanderthals or whatever. It's a, it's a radical decentering uh, Darwinian thought of uh, the way in which to think about human beings' relationship to the animal kingdom, to other species, etc. Um, and he then, uh, modestly or not so modestly, sees himself as a third in that series of thinkers uh, who decenters psychologically the human being, N uh, where not just cosmologically, not in just in terms of uh, the natural world and evolution, but in terms of the very structure of the mind. Uh, that the ego uh, is, is not master in its own house. That's Freud's phrase. The ego is not master in its own house. Something else is there, uh, as it were. Um, uh, and for him, he sees it as the unconscious and the drives. And Laplanche wants to take that up and say, yes, that's the more radical edge of Freud's thought uh, that we need to uh, retrieve and, uh, and develop. Um, and the radical otherness of the unconscious uh, challenging that uh, the ego's attempts to be the centre of things psychologically um, is <coughs> behind that, or what sustains it, is the other person, the, the, the formative other uh, in the first three to five years of childhood. Okay. The, the, the other who, uh, who, in, who is part of whom is incorporated into our, into our psyches. Uh, uh, so the unconscious is a sort of, A, a, a secondary formation, which is a function of the intersubjective interaction between adult and child. This is an asymmetrical intersubjective relationship. Uh, and something of the adult, in particular of the adult's own unconscious, is incorporated into uh, the infant, who at that stage does not have an unconscious. That's the really simplified outlines of the Laplantian arguments. You can see how it, it kind of follows from a line of thought um, in Freud's work, um, a line of thought that is at, od at odds with other lines of thought in Freud's work. So the Laplantian critique of, of classical Freudianism is a, is a very interesting one and, and quite a challenging one. Um, and I sort of wanted to kind of foreground that because it, for me it helps to think about two great tragedies, Hamlet and Oedipus, Sophocles, Oedipus, which Freud appeals to when he's, uh, when he's formulating his uh, model of infantile sexuality. And it's very much uh, in, in the initial groping stages of his thinking of it. Uh, in that letter, he writes to Fleece uh, a week or two, no, about a month after, he says, uh, I've got all these objections in my own mind to my seduction theory. I don't know if I believe it. Um, and then a month later, he's, he's thinking about Sophocles' Oedipus. He's thinking about Shakespeare's Hamlet. And he's offering them in the letter to Fleece, as he does again in the interpretation of dreams as a kind of literary modelling of um, uh, what he sees as a key structuring developmental stage uh, in, uh, uh, in the evolution of human sexuality. Uh, and that's generated a certain reading of Hamlet and a certain reading of, of, of Oedipus, which has a certain force to it. You know, uh, uh, it points to something uh, uh, that, that, that hadn't been attended to, particularly in Hamlet. Um, uh, uh, that, that's very much the case, I think. Uh, you know, he, uh, uh, he, he challenges a lot of the readings of Hamlet. Um, uh, that see Hamlet as this sensitive man of thought and not of action, uh, who represents you know, the refined sensibility of the Renaissance, who was unable to deal with this barbarian feudal military culture, uh, and who suffers sensitively uh, because he is, una he is unable to um, you know, murder his father's murderer, as it were. Now, he challenges that, and I think quite rightly. There's no sign that, that Hamlet has any objections to the ethic of revenge whatsoever. Uh, and in fact, he's very quick to pull out a sword and stick a bit of metal into somebody he's angry with, whether it's the person behind uh, uh, the, 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 um, the arras in his mother's bedroom, um, or whether it's Laertes at the end, or uh, whether it's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, um, whom he sends off to be executed, etc. He's saying Hamlet's quite up to the job to do this sort of thing that's expected of uh, an upfront, intelligent, but nevertheless, you know, militarily trained, aggressive young man. Um, <coughs> there's only one person he can't do it in relation to, and that's Claudius. And he's, what, what is the nature of, what's the, what's the structural pattern at play in his relationship to this, the one man he can't kill? Uh, uh, the one man whom uh, he is offered by Shakespeare, who is teasing us 
very much on this matter. He gives us this, that, that wonderful scene where Hamlet's proved himself. Right, it's Claudius is guilty. You saw the way he reacted when I put on the play within the play. He's the man. I can have no doubts about that. He's summoned to his mother because she's very displeased with his behavior. En route, he passes through uh, a chamber in which he comes across Claudius kneeling in prayer. He's back to him. Uh, and uh, what does he do? He says, I, I think I'll postpone it. I think I'll put it off, you know, because uh, if I kill him now, he's praying, he'll probably go to heaven. I want to send him to hell, where he probably sent my father, because he sent my, because he said my father died, you say, flush with his sins, uh, his crimes, um, <coughs> whatever they might have been. Um, and so he doesn't uh, kill. And, and Shakespeare's given us this perfect opportunity. Look, Hamlet, Claudius, back turned to you, now's your chance. Uh, and he puts off for these apparently religious or theological reasons, this is not the right moment to kill him. And as soon as he leaves the stage, Claudius gets up and says, damn, can't pray. Um, you know, I think I'd rather go to hell than give up my crown and my, and my woman. Okay? So it was the perfect moment, not only to kill the king, uh, but to send him uh, where he wanted to send him to hell. So Shakespeare's playing a kind of teasing game there. Uh, it's extremely interesting. If any of you saw uh, the Hamlet production about two years ago, uh, in London uh, with um, Patrick Stewart doing a wonderful job as, uh, as both Claudius and the ghost. And, you know, what's his name? Hamlet, I can't. What's his name? The actor uh, who is um, Doctor, Doctor Who. Yeah, he, that's right, thank you. He was, he was playing Hamlet. And they, they did this really wicked thing, um, which brings out this, this kind of perverse logic into play really interestingly. Um, it's always a problem as to where to have the interval. You know, it's this enormously long play. It's longer even than it would ever be for Shakespeare because modern editors splice together different versions and add all sorts of things and make one big long version. Pro the pragmatic problem is where do you have the interval? Okay, and particularly as the, the, act, the act scene structure is not Shakespeare's, it's being imposed on the play by an 18th century editor, Rowe. And so round about act four, it's really unclear, you know, what might be a formal stopping point. Now, the, the, the director did a really wicked thing. He put the interval in the middle of a scene. And the scene he put the interval in was the prayer scene. So Hamlet comes in, and he sees Claudius at prayer, and he takes out his sword, and he lifts it up like that. Perfect opportunity. And then the stage freezes, and the lights go out, and we have an interval. <laughs> right? And then we come back, and there's Hamlet still up there with his sword poised over the head of Claudius, and he brings his hands down, puts it in his sheath, and walks off stage saying, I'll do it later. And it's a wonderful dramatization of that, of, of, of that moment. Why can't Hamlet kill Claudius? Um, and what is Shakespeare up to here? Giving him the perfect moment to do so. Okay. What is he foregrounding? What is he dramatizing in that moment? Okay. Uh, so there's uh, both in Hamlet. Uh, so, so Freud's argument's got a certain bite on the play. Uh, what it's missing, uh, and really surprising, I always find for Freud, is nothing about daddy, right? Okay, he's being killed by Claudius, and Hamlet's passions are focused on Claudius, but actually, for Freud, of all people, who was, for whom the father-son relationship is so crucial, he says nothing about um, Hamlet's relationship to his father, uh, or indeed to his mother, at least his if his father's dead, his mother's on stage. Freud says nothing about this kind of incestuous erotic obsession Hamlet has with what his mother's doing in bed with Claudius, right? The, what goes on between the incestuous sheets, which Hamlet just goes on and on about, okay? It's clear that he is obsessed with his mother's sexuality. Um, and, of course, the father's dead, but he comes back, right? In fact, the whole play begins centering around the return of the father, and these long, powerful, uh, impassioned speeches and exchanges between them. What's happening there? Okay. Um, uh, so there's a, uh, there's a way of, uh, that I think the, there are dimensions of the play that Freud's take on it leaves out, as with Sophocles' Oedipus. There's a dim key dimensions that he leaves out. Uh, because he is very much thinking of it as centered on Hamlet, centered on Oedipus, which is perfectly reasonable why you would tend to think like that. But in both plays, there is this spectral, haunting, um, numinous figure, either of Apollo and the Oracle, or of um, 
the ghost that comes back. Okay, uh, and what happens in the play is played out between the protagonist and this ghostly or spectral other figure of the other in both tragedies. So that the uh, Ptolemaic-Copernican distinction is a sort of shorthand metaphor. I think can help us thinking about these two great tragedies which Freud had put together. I don't think um, any of the pre-Freudian commentators on Hamlet had twinned it with Oedipus. Okay. Um, they, in fact, more likely, I think, twinned it with um, a, a different Greek tragedy, uh, which is Orestes, and Orestes uh, killing his mother uh, because she has murdered his father. So it's like a Hamlet situation in reverse, and in a way, it might call out um, uh, uh, that Greek play. So no one had twinned it with Oedipus in the way that Freud has. Nevertheless, once he's done that, there is a kind of extraordinary structural rhyme between the two plays. Because they're both plays about a king who's been murdered, um, a protagonist uh, <coughs> uh, who, who turns out to be his son, uh, who, has to, who has to track down who killed his father, uh, uh, and it turns out in both cases to be the king, the current king. Uh, and in both cases, there's an incestuously compromised mother figure. Okay, And I think it's only by... Freud's twinning of them that kind of brings out that, that awareness. Uh, so there's, there's some value in, what, in Freud's insights, limited though they may be. Okay. So, uh, the, the, but there is this other dimension in both plays, the dimension of the spectral or um, uh, the, in, in Oedipus, I suppose you'd call it the numinous, uh, and the way in which the protagonist is dogged by this, this figure of the other. Okay. Uh, who's presided over their life uh, from the beginning. And I think that metaphor of Copernican and Ptolemaic sort of helps to some extent to foreground some of these dimensions of the two tragedies that Freud's reading, suggestive though it is, is blind to, as it were, almost structurally blind to, given, given the theoretical model he's working with, as it were. Um, so I've, what I've done is I've kind of <laughs> recapped to some extent what in my mind I see as some of the <coughs> theme, key themes and thematic shifts of last term. Okay. Um, what I wanted to do now is to sort of really throw it open to you, um, and I don't know what you're going to, what you might come up with, but you know, pro areas of the course that you you felt, you know, you haven't were problematic in some way. You didn't quite get it, or you know, you had a profound disagreement, or. Um, uh, uh, you know, you can't quite see what the interconnections are. Because um, it's quite a, I, I'm conscious of it being quite a dense course that it's asking you to do a number of different things, often things that English courses don't do. It's asking you to engage with theory, but to engage with theory on the move, as it were, not just a static system, here's the theoretical system, now apply it, but here's Freud having problems. Here is Freud changing his mind. Uh, here's Freud getting stuck. Um, uh, here's Freud making a breakthrough at the price of a blind spot. So it's, in a way, it's showing you theory in, you know, in, in formation, uh, as it were, rather than theory as this kind of finished, perfect, static system that can be simply applied to literature. Uh, uh, and indeed, in some ways, even here's theory challenged by literature. Okay? Um, there's some ways in which the tragedies challenge Freud, uh, uh, or that Freud's reading of them. There's a way in which Hoffman's story uh, and the second story of his we'll be reading at the end of this term from the same collection, The Sandman, challenges Freud's uh, model of trauma or Freud's model of the death drive, which is what we'll be looking at in, in week two. Um, so really open to you. Uh, questions, problems, things you feel you just didn't get or didn't seem to hang together uh, from from the term one material. Because if you didn't get something, you can be sure there are other people who didn't get it either. Okay. Um, you won't be the only one who will be struggling with a particular theme or topic or, or text or set of arguments. I'm going to take your silence as a wonderful compliment.
to the clarity and transparency of the course <laughs> in which <coughs> you've surmounted all your problems um, with confidence and success. Can you say who you are? Because I don't know you yet. Okay. Right. So what this is, this is what the kind of uh, he, he, what, what are his interpretive strategies, or uh, what in, in terms of you're thinking about sim, symbolic dimension of things, or can you give can you give us an example of? Any, anyone else feel the same? Uh, a problem about uh, maybe the, am I? getting it right, you're thinking at times the apparent arbitrariness of making a certain kind of interpretation. Yeah, like especially with the topological structures, with the id, ego, super-ego, yeah. and consciousness and conscious, and especially there are a lot of essays which discuss the idea of deformation and how um, thoughts are processed, and I think sometimes it's quite difficult to kind of see, I guess, might sound a bit too like the validity of it or right. to kind of understand how he himself has formed that structure. So you're talking here about something slightly different. Aren't you? You're talking about how does he arrive at, because he changes his mind about uh, psychical structure. Um, uh, you know, in a way, he, the sec, what, there's, there's what's called the first topography and the second topography. Isn't the first top topography is a triple distinction based on the on, on the criterion of consciousness, right? There is, there is a conscious perception system. There's the pre-conscious, which is mental contents that are not at the focus of consciousness. Consciousness he sees as a form of attention, of, of, of focusing. Um, uh, uh, and, and obviously, uh, I'm talking to you about this question at the moment. There's a whole lot of other things in my mind that I could call to mind. There are whole archives of memory, okay? that are there and that are accessible, rather like on our hard drives, as it were. Okay, there's the hard drive of, uh, of the mind. You can go through all these files. And as, as he says in one of the early case studies, um, the, uh, uh, who was it? It's from the studies in hysteria. Um, uh, Anna O, oh, I think, who was the first psychoanalytic patient, not his, but Breuer's. Um, and her memories of files, she's got something like uh, files with 100 entries in them that Breuer and Anna have worked through around the question of blindness and not seeing, uh, other memory archives where she can bring up memories and associations of various kinds, which are multiple. So we have this enormous mental archive of things that we've forgotten about, which in, in the right circumstances we can bring to mind. Okay? So he's, and, that's, and that's what he wants to call the pre-conscious. It's there, it's waiting to come into consciousness. Under, under the right circumstances, okay? But he wants to posit something else then that's radically different from that, the unconscious, the repressed unconscious, where there are certain mental contents uh, which the mind is organized, you know, to keep out of consciousness. There are mental forces deployed to stop us becoming conscious of them, okay? And a lot of energy goes into the keeping that in place, as it were, but it's vulnerable, particularly when we're asleep and our, and our mental defenses are... Uh, relaxed. Uh, so that triple distinction um, uh, creates then a, a structure. But the criterion for the distinctions, as he himself says in a self-critical moment, is that we take as a criterion the, the presence or absence of consciousness and the barriers to things becoming conscious. Okay. Um, uh, and what's dynamic about it, of course, is, to, uh, is his proposition that we may 
block things out, we may repress them, but they will return. It doesn't, to repress something, it doesn't abolish it. It doesn't go away. It comes back. There is, you know, almost like a Newtonian law of physics for every um, uh, action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It's a kind of almost like equivalent of that to the mind. For every repression, there is an equal and opposite return of the repressed. It won't take place straight away. It may not take place in the same terms in which that content existed when it was conscious, but, but it will come back at you in some form or other. Symptoms, dreams, uh, whatever, as it were. And then he shifts, to the, as you say, to the ego and the id by saying, actually, um, that doesn't... It assumes... My thir first system assumes... Uh, that the ego is equal to consciousness, but it isn't. <laughs> and having spent a lot of time thinking about unconscious drives and the primary processes and dream work, etc., etc., um, I realised there is also an unconscious dimension to the ego. Okay, the ego, because otherwise it's open to the criticism that the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre says: "This is just bad faith. You know damn well what it is you're not thinking about." Um, because you, you're the one who's, you know, has pushed it out of your mind. So, you, you know, you know what it is. <laughs> um, uh, and the Freudian reply to Sartre is to say, there's a, there, are, there's a, there are unconscious dimensions of the ego, uh, the ego's self-defense system, okay? Um, and we have to take that into account. And so it would make more sense to make a distinction between the ego uh, and the repressed. And then he elaborates the notion of the superego, which is his attempt to bring in that intersubjective relationship. You know, our mind is structured in relationship to figures we internalize, figures of the other, authority figures, loved figures, parental figures who are feared or hated or loved or whatever, that are internalized, and that internalization structures our mind. So you can see him sort of moving from one, one to the other. Um, it, it is a slightly different question, though it is a question of, uh, of as it were, what, what, what motivates it? What, what is the rationale for that change? Um, from the one you were posing about, faced with a, what, uh, an image or a, uh, an object uh, uh, that is declared to have a certain symbolic value or something. Dandelions. Well, there isn't a point at which you um, uh, can stop it in any easy or obvious way. Um, uh, when Freud's thinking about dream associations, he has this metaphor of a sort of umbilical cord, you know, that at a certain point, the associations around a particular dream or a particular fragment of a dream disappear into this whole underground network, <laughs> which may be the, uh, uh, and the, uh, the, there may be an umbilical cord that holds the dream to its surrounding mental environment, um, but it does finally disperse out into the whole network of um, uh, associations and memories, etc. Um, but th there is a potential ambiguity about Freudian interpretation at, at the level you're thinking of, a symbolic inter interpretation, in that, as you know from where he talked about his dream model, he talks about the ancients uh, and the dream books they had and the codes they had of, you know, a funeral equals marriage. If you dream of a funeral, um, you're really dreaming about a marriage. If you dream of, of this, you're really dreaming about that. There's a set of and, uh, dream interpreters could use these manuals and decode dreams in that kind of one-to-one -one way, but they always did it in terms of the context of the dreamer's life. Now, um, Freud says, in some ways, what I'm doing is like that, in that there is a, a manifest level and a latent level. Um, uh, so it's not just a matter of, uh, of what, what appears in the dream. 
Okay. What appears in the dream gets there through processes of in condensation and displacement. A whole lot of other things have been squeezed together and the elements that make up the manifest dream are standing in for things that are being displaced, like the screen memory. Right? He uses that metaphor, doesn't he? The screen memory is not gold, but it is laid next to something that is gold. Um, uh, when talking about counterfeits. Um, <coughs> so uh, he's operating with that dist crucial distinction between manifest and latent. Um, but he's, and, and he does, to some extent, say there is a universal symbolic code, but it's very limited. Um, and it's to do with the most universal bodily functions of the human being. And they t tend to get represented in dreams in a surprisingly repetitive way that leads you to think, oh, well, is this a universal code that we all have? But that doesn't give you the meaning of the dream. It gives you a hint as to what the dream's sort of synchroning around. Okay? But the say, you, you know, two people may dream a dream in which there are womb symbols or phallic symbols or whatever, but it doesn't mean the meaning of the dreams are the same. You still have to work out the meaning, and that can only come from the dreamer. Okay? Um, the dreamer and the dreamer's associations. And so the same image um, in one person's dream may have a quite different valency and range of associations from another person's dream. So in that sense, the dream interpreter is dependent on the associations uh, that the dreamer produces. Okay? Uh, uh, that, and that's the, that's the most radical thing about, I think, about the dream, about Freud's dream interpretations. It's also very, very, almost pedantically, narrowly focused on minimal elements in the dream. Okay? Uh, and not just saying, oh, this is a dream about such an action. Did you ever have this? Did this ever happen to you in your life? But, he, but it's broken down like a linguist breaks down a, a, a chain of words of speech to, its, to the, its basic elements that make up the chain, as it were. And the dream of free associates. It's up to the dreamer to divide the chain as they will. It's not for the analyst to say, right, I've been thinking about your dream and this is my analysis of it, right? The analyst hasn't got a clue what the dream's about until he can get the dreamer to tell him, <laughs> okay? Uh, so in that sense, there is, uh, the dream symbols are both arbitrary in that there's no inherent connection, um, but they're motivated. But they're motivated in different ways depending on who the dreamer is. And in a way, that's, some people like the French analyst Lacan have drawn an analogy with language. You know, verbal signs are arbitrary in the same way. There's no reason why a particular verbal signifier, uh, we in English say cat, um, and the French say chat, and the Italians say gatto. Now, you know, there's no intrinsic connection between those different sound patterns uh, and the concept of a feline species, okay? Let alone an actual pussycat, okay? Um, they're arbitrary. Um, but they're held in place by their relationship to all the other words in the language. So a cat is not a dog, okay? not a horse. It belongs to a, 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 a table of animal names, and it's distinguished by them. And, of course, language changes, and sometimes a word that's used in one sense can, can, can shift the meaning in another sense. But it's an arbitrary but not irrational connection is made between signifier and signified in ordinary language. And in a way, you, that is also the case with... With, with symbolic interpretation, okay? The problem is, is, is that you can't get a, if you're reading a, a Shakespearean tragedy, you can't go to Shakespeare and say, hey, William, could you lie down for a minute and tell me what your associations are around X or Y, okay? So you have, the literary interpreter has to be able to, and you do this whether you're using psychoanalysis or not, you have to be able to put um, the elements of the literary text in a particular context, uh, and so something has a meaning by virtue of its relationship to um, a set of other uh, words, images, symbols, or whatever. Okay? There's no, um, in that sense, all meaning is arbitrary in the sense that there's no innate connection between uh, an, a, an X and what the X might stand for. It depends on, it's entirely contextual. How does a given symbolic element uh, operate within its field of uh, of suggestion and the field of suggestion. And the more you know about it, the more you can pick up and hear uh, the, the uh, associational connections, as it were. Because to some extent, they're shared. Okay? They're partly a function of our um, individual emotional dramas that we are, we are projecting into the dream. Um, but to some extent, it's, um, 
it's a question, it is a question of certain shared cultural codes, like that we're reading an Elizabethan tragedy. Um, so certain flower images will resonate in a certain way. You know, when Ophelia comes on st stage and she says, here's a roof of forgetfulness and here's a, here's a violets for memory. Now, flowers may not have quite the same, those, those same symbolic associations for us. So the more we can pick up on, on those kinds of cultural codings, the more we can begin to see how a particular element is operating. And in a way, Freud's not doing a lot that's different from that, except he's building in the notion of, a, of the mind as being <coughs> not just a neutral sorter of elements uh, uh, using codes which are automatically applied to them. Okay? The mind is dynamic. There are opposing mental forces. Uh, and what gets articulated by human beings, whether <coughs> at the level of sophisticated literary works, at the level of their dreams, at the level of just um, ordinary everyday behavior, certain things get articulated, but they're, they're, they're compromises. They're results of um, impulses that are seeking expression and articulation and uh, counter impulses or uh, defense mechanisms or what you, what you will that are attempting to attenuate them, block them out entirely, dilute them, whatever. So what comes out of our mouths and our body language and our, and our pens uh, uh, have to be, uh, for Freud, has to be seen in terms of this um, oppo opposing forces, as it were. Um, I don't know if that helps. Okay. So I understand the first time around, you might think, oh my God, how did he get from here to here <laughs> in that kind of interpretation? Okay. And, and, and maybe in the seminars, we might kind of follow that, that thought through about the nature of the symbolic connections that are being made. Because I think his reading of the scene in the meadow and the flowers and the bread and, and that is a kind of brilliant sort of detailed taking apart, rather like... Um, you know, an archaeologist scraping away, you know, at the different layers and levels of a, of a, of a piece of papyrus or a, something dug up in a tomb or something like that. It's an extraordinarily attuned um, taking apart of the, the formation of this memory, okay? Um, uh, and so I think it's absolutely fascinating. To, I think Freud in some ways is at his best when he's doing that very, very nuanced, detailed, um, as it were, practical criticism of the mind and its processes, as it were. Okay, I'd better finish at that point. Uh, so I'll see you all in seminars today and tomorrow. Uh, did people continue to pass around that sheet? You've got it. Lovely. Thank you. <coughs>